0: Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to Liturgical Libations and Lamentations. Here at Libations and Lamentations, we believe that all people are theologians, whether they like it or not. As such, we hope this podcast will help to refine and shape the theology of the Church, particularly lay men and women, toward a more orthodox and articulate expression. Happy Feast Day of James of Jerusalem. Today is October 23rd, and it is the day where we celebrate the first Bishop of Jerusalem. Um, AJ, would you like to uh, lead us in some biographical data about James? So some of the things that we have from Scripture are
1: not entirely definitive. What we know is that from the prayer book, he's referred to as the kinsman of our Lord. um, And in other translations he's referred to as the brother of our lord uh or and and there's a lot of controversy about what that term brother means jay you can get into that a little bit later um we know that he was the first bishop of jerusalem that he came to prominence sometime early in uh, the book of acts and um i can talk if you want me to go straight into it about what it means that he was the bishop of jerusalem and how sort of all that's related yeah let's just jump straight into that so what we see is um, that James comes to prominence within the church of Jerusalem. Obviously, it starts out as you know, Peter's kind of the head of the apostles in early in Acts. But by the time we get to Acts chapter 15, it seems like James has some fairly clear authority and he's really uh, in, in charge. So in Acts chapter th- uh, 15, we see the Council of Jerusalem. And this is a conversation that Peter, Paul, and the apostles, the, the apostolic church in Jerusalem is having about what should be done with the Gentiles. And in particular, how Jewish the Gentiles have to become to become Christians. So there's a, a lot of debate and discussion that comes back and forth. Paul Barnabas, and Barnabas and the other uh, apostles to the Gentiles are describing their mission and what they've done. Peter stands up and gives his impression um, of... What God is is doing, and the work that God is doing, and what they should and should not, what burdens they should and should not place on um, to the apostles, or uh, sorry, onto the Gentiles. And so James, at the end, says, "We are going to require them only to um, abstain from meat sacrifice to idols uh, and abstain from eating the blood." And so he sort of officially pronounces what the council is going to decide. And then they write it up and they send it to the church of Antioch, which is the the first among the churches of the Gentile churches. So what's interesting here is that James is essentially playing the role that future bishops will play. He's playing the role uh, that in, in the council, that sort of the, the head bishop of a council, however that might be, he's playing sort of authoritatively stating what the decision of the council is. And so we see from this that James has a position as A bishop. This is really that he's playing officially the role of bishop. And since the word episkopos is clearly attested in scripture, we can say that James really represents uh, a clear example of the importance of the office of the bishop. The other thing that's really interesting that we can pull from this story and from a couple of other elements of scripture is the role of the Jerusalem church itself. And there really seems to be a sense in which the Jerusalem church has a clear primacy that's recognized by everyone. It's recognized by Peter and Paul that Jerusalem has the authority to determine what should be the practice in the church in Antioch. Paul um, is often arguing that the Gentile churches, the churches that he's doing missions to, need to have a collection for Jerusalem and need to have reverence for the Jerusalem church. So there seems to be at a minimum a primacy of honor and in some sense also a primacy of um, you know that, that, that Jerusalem gets to make some important decisions, and that primacy is, is recognized in the Jerusalem church. Uh, and so it's also important that Jerusalem has a, an Episcopal structure, the idea of a, a bishop who is sort of really the head of that church, and that continues after James. So what happens to this primacy? Uh, well, the church of Jerusalem that James inherited, that Paul raised a collection for, that made this decision at the Council of Jerusalem, is effectively destroyed. Uh, the second temple, after the destruction of the second temple by the Romans, the church goes into exile. It goes into a place called Pella. And then there's a second rebellion by Bar Kokhba, who is a, a Jewish figure who claims to be the Messiah. The Christians refuse to accept him as the Messiah, and so he engages in a severe persecution against the Jewish Christians. These are Christians who are uh, still Jewish, still keeping the law to some extent at least. Um, and they're they're persecuted in this church which is almost a Hebrew right um, church within a a historic episcopate, is destroyed. I think this is one of the great unrecognized tragedies of Christian history because so much of our relationship as Christians with the Jews, so much of our relationship and history uh, to our own past is lost by the destruction of this Jewish church in Jerusalem at Bar Kokhba. There is a church at Jerusalem later um, but it's largely a Gentile church. It's under the authority of Antioch, which is kind of then the more senior Gentile church. But when we look at, at the feast day of St. James and we look at who St. James is, I think it's important that we are reminded of this Church of Jerusalem and the vital role that it played in Christian history uh, and reminded of that, that heritage for a number of reasons. And it's been very important for Anglicans as well. Um, Anglicans have always had a special reverence for Jerusalem and that's reflected in Gafcon as well uh, the Gafcon conference is in Jerusalem and the declaration that comes out of it is from Jerusalem
0: and so as you mentioned um, there is you know James is clearly a prominent figure in the church of in the book of Acts um, and to that end he actually receives a special distinction within the prayer book um, in the Anglican tradition we have what are affectionately termed as red letter feasts and black letter feasts or um, major feasts or minor feasts um, but the major feasts the red letter feasts are days when we are expected to go and receive the Eucharist that's part of our celebration of the red letter feast. Um, clergy are required to celebrate the Eucharist on those days um, because they are primary feasts of the Excuse me, of the Christian Church, focusing on the you know clear witness of what we've seen in Scripture. So no more of those feasts are going to be feasts of the twelve apostles. Um, there'll be christological feasts. So for instance, the feast of the Ascension never falls on a Sunday, uh, but should always be um, celebrated with a Eucharistic celebration as being one of those red letter feasts. James, although he is not one of the twelve apostles, is given a red letter feast um so he celebrated with his own collect in the prayer book um and his day is set aside and the reason for that is first he has a prominent role in the book of acts he is constantly referred to actually through paul's letters uh, in first corinthians he's specifically referred to as one of the people that christ visits after his resurrection and before the ascension but is not included within the 12 disciples so he is a very prominent figure and as you read church history, he's mentioned in Eusebius, in Jerome, um, and Clement of Alex, Clement of Alexandria. So there's lots of references to him throughout the church fathers, um, and his important role in shaping the the church, um, and especially when we when we look to scripture too. There's a there's discussion about this, but I, I personally think the best way to th- see the book of James in the New Testament as being the book written by James of Jerusalem, because he writes his letter to the 12 tribes in dispersion. It's very clearly written to the Jewish church um, or the church of Jerusalem. The other thing we wanted to talk about was the idea of the phrase, James, the kinsman of our Lord. Um, So we mentioned that's how he's referred to in the prayer book. Um, There is lots of debate about did Jesus have brothers and sisters was mary perpetually a virgin and i don't want to delve too far into this debate um if you really want to hear a debate about it you can write in and ask us later Um, but i am going to give you just some real quick understanding of different ways to understand this Um, so really quickly there are probably three ways to understand who james was Um, and they all point back to actually an understanding of christ um, so the we talk we will talk later about Christology, and Christology is our understanding of who Christ was and is, and how he exists now. And a lot of when we talk about what's called Marian theology, or our understanding of the Virgin Mary, relates to how we understand Christ. So in we, fact,
1: I think all in this Mariology to a certain extent is Christology. Um, if you're if you have a theory of Mary that's not really connected to Christology, um, you might want to take a look at that. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so when, what we're going to be talking about here uh, goes to what's referred to as the perpetual virginity of Mary, um, and and any belief about that reflects how you understand Christ. Um, but so there are there are three potential ideas for how James is related to Christ. Um, the first is that he is the blood brother of Jesus. You know, after Jesus was born, uh, Joseph takes Mary as his wife and. They have more kids, um, brothers and sisters, and to include James. Um, another understanding is that when the word brother is used in the New Testament, it's relating to cousin. Um, so that James is merely a cousin of Jesus. Um, Mary remains a virgin, uh, but James you know, is related to Jesus in that way. And the third, which is uh, what would be believed by the Eastern Orthodox, um, is that he is a brother of Jesus, but rather a, um, a stepbrother. So that in jo- Joseph had a first marriage, um, and after the passing of his first wife, he takes Mary to be his wife, and so he brings with him children from other marriages. So James is rightfully called the brother of Jesus, but not by blood. Um, but I want to get into the the topic of perpetual virginity, and very quickly. Um, And I want to say, first and foremost, uh, one of us, one of the hosts on the shows, believes in the perpetual virginity. Uh, The other one of us does not. Um, So there is is dissension among your hosts here. Um, And we think that dissension is important to bring up because it brings up a very important understanding uh, that we hold to as Anglicans. um, That nothing can be required for salvation except that which is clearly in Scripture. So we would call those dogmatic beliefs. Anything that is in scripture must be believed as dogmatic. So the fact that Mary was a virgin when she conceived Christ is crucial to the faith. That is dogmatic. That needs to be believed. Uh, What happens afterwards is not specified in scripture. And so we can't hold to it as a dogmatic belief, but we can hold to it as a pious belief. So we're going to give you two pious ways uh, for you to think about this topic um, so that when you're holding this belief, whether you fall on one end or another end of the spectrum, you're at least holding it uh, with a good conscience, if that makes sense. Um, So the first would be if you believe in favor of the perpetual virginity. Uh, Probably the most scriptural understanding of that would be that Christ is the new covenant. Uh, He even says this, this cup, referring to his blood, it, or he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Um, so Christ is the vessel himself of the new covenant. And the only human or physical vessel that bears Christ is Mary. So in a sense, Mary is the ark of the new covenant. So when we think about it in those terms, the when we look at the ark of the old covenant, the ark physically was holy because of its association with the covenant. Not that the ark itself had this special, unique function or special, unique attribute to it, but rather the honor and glory that was given to it by bearing the old covenant made it so that it could no longer be profaned. Anything that was used to interact with the ark could no longer be used for another purpose because it was set apart or set aside and set apart as holy and could not be used. So therefore, understanding Mary as the Ark of the New Covenant, we cannot remotely imagine Mary bearing something else in her womb after that womb has already borne the New Covenant. So that's a very biblical understanding of perpetual virginity. Um, and now if we want to look at not believing in perpetual virginity, a biblical understanding of that would be that throughout the... Um, Old and New Testaments. When we look at the vocation and fulfillment of marriage, um, especially seeing marriage as a sacramental act where there is a outward and inward sign of an inward and spiritual grace. So we know clearly from scripture that the inward and spiritual grace of marriage is being knit together and being one. Uh, But the outward and physical sign of that is the consummation of the marriage. Therefore, for Joseph to take Mary to be his wife in a scriptural sense, he has to know her. Um, furthermore, in order for uh, Jesus to be brought into the lineage of David requires Mary and Joseph to be truly married, which requires consummation. Um, and so those are those are competing views. Um, and like we said, one of us holds one of those views and the other one of us holds another one of those views. We're not going to tell you which so that you can continue guessing. Um, but what we will say is throughout the tradition and history of the church, East and West, um, up past the reformers. Uh, so to include John Calvin, Martin Luther, and John Wesley. So 300 years after the Reformation, there is no dissension, no doubt that the perpetual virginity is the doctrine of the church. So if you do hold to the perpet or if you hold to the perpetual virginity, you're in good company. You've got all the church fathers and you've got all the reformers and all the councils if you don't hold to it you need to hold not hold to it with humility and recognize that in so doing you are standing against the witness of the church and so be be willing to recognize that when you enter the pearly gates you'll realize that you're probably wrong um but yeah, I think, uh, do you have anything else you want to add on James or perpetual virginity or Christology or Mariology or anything in between, AJ?
1: Well, I do think there's one important thing that we, we really do need to talk about before we close, and that, and that is how should you feast for the feast day oh, of St. James? Oh, yes, absolutely. James. And so my thought on that is, is this, you know, so, so James is really, in a sense, um, among the, apost- the apostolic generation, the guardian of the Jewish church. Um, he, is, he is the guardian of the, the church's Jewish heritage. And that was something that he took very seriously and saw as his role within that apostolic generation, apostolic community. So I'm thinking we want a feast here that's, that's maybe in accordance with that. Um, Jay, what, what are your thoughts?
0: Yeah, so I, I think if you were to do that, you know, on one hand, you could uh, maintain a, a kosher feast. But the irony of that is when you look at the Council of Jerusalem... Unless you're Jewish, James specifically says you don't have to. We don't have to follow the kosher laws, so right. that might be a little uh, ironic there. But um, you know, I, I agree that you know, if if we look at maybe you know even you know some of the best re- records that we have of what a Jewish feast looks like, you can look at the the seder meal for the Passover. Um, shows you what a true feast would look like um, in the Jewish tradition. Um, my mind, whenever I celebrate this feast, you know, I haven't told anybody yet, but uh, James of Jerusalem is my patron saint. And when I celebrate this feast, so I, I had the opportunity to go to Israel about five, six years ago. And my favorite meal that I had every day there was really good hummus or hummus mm. and really good falafel. Ah! So I don't know how much of that there was in the first century. But, but when there I, should have been. Yeah. When I think Jerusalem that's the that's the food i ate every day when i was in Jerusalem. So so when i celebrate this feast, that's uh i, I make homemade hummus and i um well I, I don't really know how to make falafel very well, but i go and find somewhere that i can buy some falafel. Um and then i i normally try to go and uh, find a libation from Israel. They have really phenomenal wines. Mm. So i would recommend a a wine from Israel. That would be those would be my go-to's. Excuse me. So, so what we're saying here is a,
1: a feast that is sort of not um, legalistically, but maybe sort of more ecumenically uh, Jewish. Something that's got a, a heavy med, uh, Mediterranean influence that maybe draws from that Seder tradition. Some libations from Israel, and you know this might be a good time not only to um, uh, receive the Eucharist. That's of course important because this is a feast, as, as Jay described. But you know maybe also time as you're praying and you're praying through the collects to remember. Uh, the tension that currently exists in the Holy Land and the difficulty that that has persisted there. Uh, These questions of of Jew and Gentile, these questions of how Christianity fits into that area of the world are still difficult. Um, And so the feast day of St. James might be a a really good time to, to pray for wisdom
0: and also to pray for peace. All right, well, with that being said, AJ, may the Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Grant, O God, that following the example of your apostle James the Just kinsmen of our Lord, your church may give itself continually to prayer and to the reconciliation of all who are at variance in enmity. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. This has been Liturgical Libations and Lamentations. We hope you will join us next time as we continue to weep and imbibe throughout the church's year.